if we uh, were sticking to schedule, we would be in Acts 17, because we've been going through Acts of the Apostles, and we did 16 last week, but something came up, and I feel like it's rather urgent, and I really wanted to preach on this this week, so we're doing something else. So our passage, which you're just going to have to close your eyes to appreciate, because I don't have a visual for us, is from Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 9. So listen to these words from Paul, from God, for us. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Do not worry about anything, but in everything. By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, beloved, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence and if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Keep on doing the things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray for the sermon. Almighty Lord, I I humbly pray that you would give me boldness, that you would give me truth, you would give me eloquence, that you would help me to speak as you would have me speak. And I humbly pray that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to receive and even encounter you and be changed by your word. In the name of Jesus, amen. So a friend of mine recently made this confession to me. He said, you know, I've realized something. I've realized that in the last few years, my biggest sin has been hopelessness. And he started to talk about, you know, the things in his life and in society and all of the things that so many of us think about all the time that make one hopeless. And he nuanced it and it was fascinating. He said, I I still have hope that God is in charge and that God is going to bring all things to fruition. And maybe like in a hundred years, things will be better, but I don't have hope for like now. struck such a chord with me. Because if I'm honest with you, I'd make much the same confession. I don't don't think I'm hopeless right now, even even for the present. But, I mean, I'd certainly confess that my hope is, is wavering and complicated and muddled and kind of doubt filled. I mean, let's put it this way. Here's what happened to me a few days later. We were praying this week, Wednesday prayer, and I prayed, as I I often do, for the problem of gun violence and mass shootings. And I don't know if it was my friend's confession that sort of like let me be more honest or if it was the Holy Spirit or both or what, but I just prayed something like in these fumbling words, God, I don't know how to pray for this. I don't know how to hope for this. I don't think anything can change. I believe you're God of the universe. I believe you can do anything, but I don't think anything can change about this. Hear me, help me, hear my honesty, hear my lament. I don't know how to hope for this issue 
that's important to me, that's important to us. So the urgency here is the, um, the need to address, I think, what's a big, big, big problem for all of us, which is hopelessness, despair, growing cynicism, growing angst, those things that are kind of deforming our souls in ways that, if we're honest, aren't good. And there's a lot of reason for us to be full of angst, of course. This is the kind of stuff I read, like, seemingly every day. I read this article in The Atlantic about this professor named Peter Turkin. Grew up in Russia, immigrated here in the 70s, brilliant guy, started to study, became an expert in pine beetles, okay? And he had this new approach to pine beetles. And he wanted to study, you know, not taxonomy, where you put the pins in the bugs and you put it on the board. That was like the old way of doing pine beetles. The new way of doing pine beetles, apparently, is you use data, like everything else. And he looked at every facet of their environment and of their lifestyle and everything to try to predict whether pine beetles would like flourish in a new forest or whether they'd die out. And he made these complicated data-driven models. And at some point, I think it was in the mid-90s, he said, I've answered all the pine beetle questions. It's awesome. And, and so he said, I'm going to apply the same sort of techniques to humanity. So what he's been doing since is he looked at 10,000 years of human history, gathering as much data as you could ever gather on things like how much government spent on this and lifestyles and how many elites there were. And with these enormous data sets, he tries to make these models that make predictions. And in around 2010, he was one of these lone voices that predicted that things were going to get really, really bad starting in about 2020. There was going to be civil discord. There was going to be more and more unrest. There was going to be some violence. There was going to be, I don't know the details, but all of a sudden, 2020 happens, and people are like, oh, we should listen to this Peter Turkin guy. And his prediction is, in the next five or 10 years, things are going to get much worse. That's his mathematical modeling. I read stuff like this, like, every day. I can't help it. I don't know what circles I travel in, but these things come across my path. There's a finance guy, I didn't know this name, Ray Dalio. You guys know this guy? Anyway, he's the, 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 he started the biggest hedge fund in the world, $150 billion. And now he's turned to studying history and sort of bringing that to bear on finance and whatnot. He did an interview recently. And, and this is important because these are the guys that like say stuff and then like markets move. I don't know how that works, but you know what I mean. And he said, I, I think there is a 40% chance that we're going to have a type of civil war in the imminent future. He said, I don't know if it's going to be violent. It may be violent. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying a situation where people just stop following the rule of law. Courts issue opinions, people ignore it. Elections happen, people ignore them. Laws are passed, people ignore them. So I think there's a 40% chance. Now, I have no idea how you would know that, but, but my point is that, I mean, you guys know, you've, you've encountered this kind of stuff. You've read this kind of stuff. You've seen this kind of stuff on the internet. I've said for months, if not years now, that I think the only thing the right and left agree on right now is hate your enemies. But I discovered a second thing. The other thing the right and left agree on is things are really bad, they're almost certainly going to get worse. 
and they may well get disastrously worse. It's the second thing that the right and left agree on. Okay, I'm going to stop this part of the sermon. I'm making myself depressed. If you need further justification for the thesis that we feel angst and are probably okay and right feeling some angst because people are talking in ways that make us angst-filled, come see me afterwards. Not so that I can convince you, but so that I can learn why you don't feel that way and learn your secret. All right, so um, what do we do about this? Like living in this kind of world, like how, how do we live? And how do we, how do we have hope? And how do we pray? And how do we act? I don't have an answer, but I have three suggestions and one word for us. And here's the distinction there. In 1 Corinthians 7.25, Paul says this. I thought I memorized it. I didn't. Paul says, Now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give my opinion as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. What? It seems like what he's saying is, what I'm about to say is kind of tentative or provisional or a little more human, a little less authorized, a little less apostolic. Here's sort of my take on things. And it's got less backing of the Lord. I'm a little less confident in it, but I'm going to tell you nonetheless. And um, that's my three suggestions. And then the word is what we're going to dig into our passage real quick. That I feel a lot more confident about. And that I feel like is, is a word of God for us. First suggestion for me I mean, for you, but for me, again, I'm preaching myself. This is my problem too, this despair thing. First suggestion is I need to have a little perspective. I need to really try to learn a lot more to have a much more fair, balanced, informed perspective. Here's what I mean. You probably heard this like I heard this in the last two years. Ha <laughs> the phrase of the year is you're on mute. And the word of the year is what? What's the word that everyone uses? Unprecedented. unprecedented. Everything is unprecedented about life, right? But here's what I've realized. The more I've thought about this and reflected on this, we are 180 degrees wrong when we talk like that. The only thing that's unprecedented is the relative peace and prosperity we enjoyed for the last 50 years. That's what's unprecedented. The life I grew up living, and not everyone, not everyone, don't, don't get me wrong. There are many pockets of America that live in poverty and deal with racism and deal with all sorts of deep structural and personal and real issues. But, but I'm talking about me. I grew up and I hadn't been a war, hadn't been a pandemic, economy's thriving, I'm full of opportunities. I think the world's a meritocracy. I go to a great college. I mean, that's the unprecedented part in human history. I shared this before in a sermon. This goes way back when I was doing Revelation. This is, this is freaky. There's a historian that looked at warfare and studied warfare. In the past 3,400 years, 3,400, the world had no war approximately 268 years, 8% recorded history. Estimates for the total number of people killed in wars throughout all of human history 
range from 150 million to 1 billion. That was not my life growing up. That hadn't been my life. Pandemic's unprecedented, isn't it? Yeah, not at all. Not at all. We could talk about malaria, cholera, smallpox, measles, Spanish flu, bubonic plague. I could keep going. I'll stop there. Bubonic plague is estimated to have killed a third of the human population in three years. Starvation and poverty. Mao Zedong's program, known as the Great Leap Forward, is estimated to have killed between 30 and 45 million people in four years. 1958 to 1962, that is not long ago. But, but, but here's the unprecedented part, right? All bad things happening at the same time? No, that is entirely precedented. 14th century has been described as a time of plague, war, taxes, brigandage, bad government, insurrection, and a schism in the church. Or I like this description. A violent, tormented, bewildered, suffering, and disintegrating age, a time as many thought of Satan triumphant. That's the 14th century, historians who study that time. I mean, think about it. There was a whole period of human life for centuries called the Dark Ages. So we need to have a little perspective. I need to have a little perspective. When I'm like, woe is me, the world is falling apart. The world is not falling apart, relatively speaking. We need to have a little perspective. Suggestion number two, I think we need to listen to some voices from the past. There is a uh, professor, I think he teaches at Wheaton, named Esau Macaulay. Have you guys heard of him? He wrote a book a few years ago that got all this publicity. By all this publicity, I mean like the thousand people that read New Testament scholarship books. Um, But no, he actually writes for the New York Times. It's got greater publicity. It's called Reading While Black. And he talked about his own journey uh, as an African-American man in this country trying to wind his way through the academy and the questions that were asked, questions that weren't asked, the things he's learned. And I reread chapter one of that book this week, and I was just struck by this fact. Tracking the word hope through that chapter. He talks about, he says, the history of the black church in this country is a history of trying to figure out how to hope. I mean, think about that. My friend who said, I could hope maybe 100, 200 years from now things would get better, but I can't hope for my lifetime. Think about a people that had zero hope that things could ever change in their lifetime. If I want to grow in my faith, if I want to grow in hope, I need to spend some time learning more from people who have wrestled with this more profoundly than I ever have like Esau Macaulay, like slaves, like others that have a different perspective than I do. Third suggestion is we got to give ourselves a little grace. That's what I still tell myself as a pastor four years in, give yourself grace, give yourself grace. 
You know, this whole angst thing that the world is falling apart is pretty new to some of us. And um, new is new, and new is hard. It takes time, and we make mistakes. So let's give ourselves a little grace. Okay, here's our passage. Here's our word. Here's the thing I really want to say. What we learned today from Paul is that joy is an imperative. Here's what I mean by that. Imperative, right? Imperative mood, linguistically, is a command. Do this. Indicative mood is describing. I am walking in front of you and talking right now. That's indicative, declarative, telling what's happening. Imperative is walk that way. Paul, in this passage, says, rejoice like you can choose to do it. On the uh, New Covenant School trip that I went on to South Carolina, I love this. Leaders and teachers would often talk about, is this a New Covenant thing? Choose joy? No, not at all. Okay, anyway, I heard it, and it's awesome. Choose joy. But like, it feels weird to be told that, doesn't it? My mom has this favorite um, skit. I think it's like Saturday Night Live or something. It's Bob Newhart going back many years. And he's in the role of a psychologist and people come into his office and they talk about their fears and their problems. And all he says to them over and over is, stop it. That's all he says. Just stop it. And it kind of feels like that. If I say, choose joy, rejoice. When Paul says rejoice, it's like, I can't. I can't just do that. If I could, I wouldn't feel such angst. That's a very real thing to wrestle with. I asked Kenai if I could share this. Kenai has amazingly, wonderfully, laudably struggled to deal with ADHD and how that affects his life, losing things and going to school and studying and paying attention and whatnot. And part of those struggles over the last few years have been <laughs> me saying things like, can I just do this? He's like, Dad, I have ADHD. I, I, I can't, I struggle to just do that. If I could just do it, I would, but I can't just do it. It kind of feels like that when Paul says, rejoice. But, I mean, here's the thing. I think at the very least, we could, we could talk about Paul's imperative like this. We can choose steps that will make joy more possible tomorrow. We can choose to create or enter conditions to make joy more likely. We can even choose to be surprised that we are more capable of joy than we thought we were. And Vero this week one of our friends was sharing how she didn't think she could do this, this, this thing. And it was incredible to see that she was more brave, more courageous, more capable than she ever thought possible. I think Paul's imperative to rejoice is an invitation to at least consider that for ourselves in this time, this moment of despair. Paul goes on in our passage. He says, don't worry about anything. 
again, I'm like, that's hard to do. But in everything, listen to that, in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. See, there's the paradox of the Christian faith right there. The whole paradox of the Christian faith is what? It gives you an imperative, do this, rejoice. And then he goes on to say, and every single thing, everything is going to depend on you praying to God and God doing it. God guiding your heart, God guiding your minds. And it's like, wait, what? He says, you can't do it. Only God can do in your hearts and minds what needs to be done. So go out and try your hardest and do it. That's the paradox. That's our life. That's our faith. Okay, I want to give a caveat before we conclude. Please don't mishear me as saying, okay, you're dealing with serious, serious depression, serious angst. You're in this deep, dark, terrible moment. And I'm just saying, all right, rejoice, imperative. I mean, Paul also writes in Romans 12, 15, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. It is not the case that this is a command to like deny basic human realities of your emotions. That is not what he's saying. There are times when you are not going to be able to rejoice. And you weep. And what do you need? Friends that weep with you. That's also part of this. We got to put a finer edge on this before we end. So, mm, mm. here's the challenge of rejoicing. Here's something we could, we could retort if we wanted to to Paul. Here's the challenge. There's this psychological term, negative filtering, which we are all prone to more than we'd like to admit. Ten things happen in a day. One's good. Seven are neutral. Two are bad. How was your day, honey? Terrible. Why? I mean, we have this like human tendency to see and to focus on the negative. That's called negative filtering. That's a real phenomenon. There's another phenomenon called confirmation bias. That's the way that we see a piece of evidence, and if it fits with our worldview and we want to believe it, we say, oh, yeah, great, that's further evidence. And if we see something that contradicts our worldview, we're like, wait, I don't know about that. It's been described like this, confirmation bias. If it's something we, we want to believe, we say, can we, can we believe it? If it's something we don't want to believe, here's the approach we come to and we say, do we have to believe it? That's confirmation bias. So here's how confirmation bias works with negative filtering. We're inclined to focus on the negative and see the world negatively. Well, what does that mean? Well, then we go forward and that's the lens we use for life. And then something negative happens, we're like, see? See, I knew. I knew it was all bad. I knew it. Selective attention, any given moment, you can't pay attention to everything around you. You've got to focus your attention somewhere. So what are you going to do? If you're negative filtering, you've got confirmation bias, your selective attention means you're going to look at the negative things. You got the problem of what I called the pleasure trap a while back, which is the fact that things are good until they become normal, and then you're not thankful for them anymore. My voice, I'm already sort of losing my overjoyed thankfulness at the very fact of being able to speak. And if you ask me a year from now, I'm going to be like, oh yeah, I talk. I'm not going to be like praying every day, God, thank you that I can talk. It's another problem we have. So 
we're fighting an uphill battle in some ways. All that to say, joy is not like our default position that inertia takes us to. Our default position is what? Hopelessness, cynicism, and despair. And this is deeply exacerbated by the way that history is written and by the way newspapers are written. I love this. There's this historian named Barbara Tuckman, and she talks about her phrase is the overload of the negative in history writing. And she says, here's her quote, the normal does not make news. The extraordinarily bad is what is disproportionately reported. She said, if you read history, like her history of the 14th century, you would think that not a single peasant made it home at night to their cottage. But they did. Most of them did every night. I put it this way. I mean, think about the way history books are written, the way history works. You can't write a history of like, and these guys farmed beets. It's just not a history book, even though most people were just farming beets. Tuckman's law is this. She says, the fact of being reported multiplies the apparent extent of any deplorable development by five to tenfold or any figure the reader would care to supply. She means if you read that the sky was falling, it wasn't really for most people most of the time. It's just the way that history is written. It's the way newspapers are written. You're not going to pick up a newspaper and it's a series of stories. Like Quincy wrote a briefing for work today and it was great. It's just not news. That's not how news works. Here's why this is important. Here is the modern day application I want to leave you with for choosing joy, for dealing with hopelessness. The hopelessness that what makes your soul and your spirit less effective, less faithful, less fruitful, less open to God changing you. If we're honest, this is urgent. I said at the outset, here's the application. Most of us probably need to change the way that we interact with information in our lives. And most of us probably need to change that pretty dramatically. We need to choose very, very carefully, thoughtfully, prayerfully, and theologically where we receive information from, what information we receive how often we receive it, how we receive it, and what we do with it. Maybe, just maybe, some of us, many of us, most of us should do something like what I've been trying to do in my own life for the last year, which is stop looking at the news. What? That's heresy. Isn't being informed a critical cardinal Christian virtue? Yes and no. I've thought about this really long and hard. Yes, yes, being informed is. You read the Bible, you read scripture, it is about the public life of Israel. Israel was meant to know about kings, and about economics, and about priests, and about its capital, and about its structure. Yes, being informed is, is, is a major gesture of Scripture as a whole, absolutely. 
but it's not self-evident to me what being informed means and the way that we should go about it. Here's what I mean. You say, no, 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 I'm going to keep reading the news. I'm going to keep vigilantly with the, the notifications and I look at it every hour. I need to be informed. I'm informed. And my response to you would be, are you? War in Ukraine. Do you know about what's happening in Ethiopia or Yemen or Myanmar? How informed are you? How do we go about being informed? I have a family member who asked me, pointed, barbed, bear trap political questions recently, wanting to engage. There was one about immigration. And I said, if, if you're interested, that interested in immigration, I'm happy to become informed about that with you. But I don't want to participate in the rage machine. The soundbite that you just told me, that's not being informed. We could read these books. Here's five books. Here's some experts. You like to be informed? Let's be informed. It's not self-evident to me that what we do, what I've been doing most of my adult life, is actually helping me to be informed in the most profound, robust, helpful, fruitful Christian way that helps me also choose joy. Oh, and by the way, as I've increasingly unplugged from media, I am no less informed than you are. Why? Because people talk. Did you hear about this? No, tell me about it. I know about all of the same news stories that you know about. I just have them presented to me in a less in your face, the world is all doom and gloom. Listen to this every hour of every day through your device kind of a way. Here's the other thing. And this I really will end here. I think I said I was going to end like 20 minutes ago. Um, I really will end here. Here's the other thing. And this is, this is actually the most important thing I want to say. Here's what happened to me in the prayer on Wednesday. When I prayed my sort of despairing, lamenting, confessional prayer about gun violence and I didn't know how to pray, someone else prayed. And she didn't exactly say this, but this is what I heard. And this was a profound spiritual word from the Spirit for me. Earlier in that same time of prayer, we had been praying Thanksgiving for things like Joanna and Stephen's Institute that they're going to share about in a moment. And how is this amazing time where teachers got rest and got inspired and were ready to take back ways to teach and form students in these profoundly real, important ways. And we're talking like 30 teachers far flung over the nation, over the world, and I thought, that's not going to make the news. And I thought, how much of that is happening every single day? Is God still profoundly at work on a 
daily, pervasive, overarching way? Absolutely. We just have to look for it. And my problem is my default, my inertia mode is just to look at the notifications on my phone and then put it down and then do some work and then do that again and not look for it. And that's not fair to myself. That doesn't allow me to choose joy. I shared the story after that. My youngest son, Masa, we were driving. I also asked for permission, don't worry. We were driving and it was quiet. And he said, Dad... What do you think is the next step in my spiritual life? It is possible to hope. It is possible to rejoice. We just have to think really, really carefully and scripturally and listen to what Paul says. We've got to focus on what's good. We got to focus on what's pure. We got to focus on what's praiseworthy because it is there, but our default mode is not to see it. That's a great segue to let Stephen and Joanna come up and tell us more about what happened at their institute. <laughs> 